Father, we do thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Jesus who paid the price for sin, which was death on the cross. The wrath of God on our behalf, so that through faith we might be made one with God. Not based upon our own merit, but based upon the righteous perfection and spotlessness of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so we do echo the words of that song this morning and say thank you. Thank you, O God, for the indescribable, inexpressible gift of your Son, Jesus. But at the same time, God, we understand that there is, there is a fearfulness about the judgment that you poured out on your Son, Jesus, and that those who are not in Christ will experience that judgment. And so, God, as we examine ourselves today, as we look into your word, I pray, oh God, please, guide our understanding. Allow our, our, our thoughts to be in harmony with your thoughts. Clear away any misunderstanding this morning and let your truth, your living truth, shine in our hearts. Have your way in our minds. Guide us into truth this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. And may your presence be with us. Thank you, O God, that as we have the Holy Spirit, that you are with us, but we pray that the presence of your Spirit would have your way in our lives. That we would not turn away a deaf ear, that we would not hold you at a distance, but that we would allow your spirit to do your convicting work, to examine us and to, to test us, to expose the areas of our life that are out of step with the fruit that you desire to bring in and through us, through your power. May we be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit, and may we leave this place as those who are on this ever-continuing journey of being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. May Jesus show up even more in our lives this week as we seek to apply these truths into our everyday life. Go before us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of the songs that we have sung this morning have to do with ransom in redemption. Um, so grateful for, for John and his ministry and, and helping to make sure that, that, that we're exposed to truths, that we encounter truths, that, uh, that we sing and think about together through, through music that help to prepare us, prepare our hearts and minds for, for the truths that we're going to be hearing from his word. But if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I won't do this, if I were to ask you for a definition, what is ransom? What is redemption? What does that mean? What does that look like? And, 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 and not only from a, from a human standpoint, but what is ransom and redemption from a biblical standpoint? Maybe some of you could be right on it and, and know exactly how to define it and, and, and do it in clear and precise language. Maybe the rest of us, like me, would, would struggle with that a little bit. But I want you to understand that ransom and redemption is is so essential for the gospel, so essential for us as believers, that unless we know what 
true ransom and redemption is, we'll never be able to articulate the gospel the way we need to articulate it. Let me open up with just a, a simple story of, of what we may be familiar with in terms of a king's ransom and how that term came to be. Back in 1193, the English king Richard I, who was also known as King Richard the Lionheart, he was returning from battle. And as he returned through Europe, Leopold V captured him in Austria. This emperor, Leopold, demanded a, rams a ransom for Richard's release. The price was 150,000 marks, which is the same as three tons of silver. 6,000 pounds of silver. That's a hefty price. This was an enormous ransom demand, but the people of England so loved their king that they submitted to extra, taxa extra taxation, and, and many of the nobles donated their, their fortunes for Richard's release. After many months, the money was raised, and King Richard returned to England. And this is where we get the term, a king's ransom. It is essentially the purchase price. It's to pay off a debt to meet the demands that are required in order to uh, allow there to be a measure of freedom. That's what we're looking at this morning as we look into our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. We're going to talk about ransom and redemption, these two words that are used interchangeably through the Old and New Testament. But they're probably two words that are maybe unfamiliar in our thinking. But I want you to understand they're so woven into the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. This is how he defines his ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So primary to Jesus' ministry, so, so single-minded his uh, his devotion and purpose and call to ministry that Jesus understood this essential element of his life and ministry was to bring ransom and redemption to many. Mission statement of Jesus describes his sole purpose and in order for us to, to really understand the gospel and to articulate the gospel well, we need to recognize the significance of this term. Of course, we're going to look at uh, this passage, but, but to kind of lead us into this passage this morning in verse 17 through 19, I want, I want to just briefly give us some background so we can remember where we have been. As you remember in verses 1 to 12, we, we found out about this great salvation that is given to us through the ministry of, of the Godhead, the triune God who has brought salvation near it's been purchased through Jesus Christ himself who died and rose again and because of his life we find in verse 5 we have or verse 4 we have living hope living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that living hope is kept for us in heaven. And, and as Peter is expounding these truths of this great salvation he's pointing to great mercy Great mercy that we experience, which, which helps to, to uncover, expose for us that, that, the, that the grace that we have been given is not a grace that we deserve. 
Two weeks ago, we we saw that because of this great salvation, now there's a transition, now there's an expectation, there's exhortation and command that must be applied to your life. In verse 13, we saw this first of several commands. Set your hope on grace. What you've been called with is what you've been called to. You have been called by the grace of God. And you have been called into this relationship with God that is meant to orient your attention, your focus on future grace. The the grace that will culminate in the return, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where all that has been purchased for us, all the guarantees of, of that salvation that has been claimed for us in Christ, we can finally experience to the max, to the full, when God takes us to be with Him in glory. Because... The prize is it's not so much the, the freedom of pen, penalty as much as the prize is Jesus himself. And we'll go to be with Jesus there in glory. Last week we saw that the hope that we have, this setting your hope on grace, leads to something else. And, and the next main verb in the series is, is to set your hope on grace and then hope leads to holiness. Those who are oriented towards a proper perspective of who God is will live in such a way that they demonstrate the indwelling Holy Spirit. As God who called you is holy, you also be holy. You might say, how in the world is that possible? That is is out of reach for me. And God says, it is out of reach for you. But I have given as a holy God my Holy Spirit to indwell your life. And as you allow the Holy Spirit to have his way, as you yield to the power of the Spirit, as you put to death what is fleshly in you, as you put off your members, the the passions of your own life, and as you allow the Spirit to have his way in your life, you make room for the fruit of the Spirit to to, to show up in terms of holiness. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all that comes because of the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in your life. Holiness happens as we submit and yield to the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We saw last week as well this this third command in the string that, that hope leads to holiness and holiness is incentivized by holy and reverent fear. We're going to pick that up this morning. Conduct yourselves in fear. I think that's unfamiliar for many of us in terms of, of our relationship with God. We, we, we tend to have a casual, or we can have a, a casual and flippant attitude when it comes to a relationship with God. But, but Peter wants to press in to this, this uh, audience, these, this church that's scattered across uh, the known part of Turkey. He wants them to understand that the motivation for a holy life, the motivation for setting your hope on grace is is recognizing all that God has accomplished for you in cultivating a healthy fear of who God is. Matthew 28, or 10, 28 puts it this way. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And of course, uh, Jesus is pointing to himself. He's pointing to the Trinity. He's pointing to, to God who is able 
to destroy both soul and body in hell. For those who do not come and place their faith in Jesus as the only way of salvation, the only means of entering into relationship with God. I was thinking about fear a little bit. <laughs> I was thinking as a sixth grader, uh, we were having this field trip, and uh, it, was a, it was a cold day. Everyone was down in the coat room putting their, their coats away. This was Xenia Christian Day School. I was, uh, uh, went to elementary there. And uh, my, my teacher said that we weren't allowed to get on the bus. I was so eager. I had never been on a field trip before. I was so excited about going on this field trip. But, but our teacher said, no, you can't go on the bus because uh, the principal has said, we need to wait because it was cold. I think he had probably some really good reasons for that. So I, I went down to the coat room and, and started bad-mouthing uh, Principal Higdon. And then all of a sudden, as the person I was talking to said, and guess who was behind me? Yes, Mr. Higdon was behind me. And all of a sudden, my heart was gripped with fear. He pulled me aside into the, what was the nursery of this church building where the school was, was taking place. And, and I can't tell you, my, my knees were knocking together and uh, there was this healthy, reverent fear. And other things were happening too, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I was afraid. We need to understand the significance of fear. The kind of healthy fear that puts things in perspective. Recognize the price that was paid to claim and purchase your salvation. And recognize the judgment that comes on those who are outside. And let that fix your heart, your conduct, your livelihood in fear of God. Who is worthy to be praised. But is also the great judge who judges impartially. This is the reverent fear of these verses in verses 17 to 21. It's one sentence in the Greek and it all fits together. So everything we're going to be talking about this week and next has as its theme fear, reverent fear. Live and conduct yourselves in reverent fear. It's really interesting. We sang that song, Jesus, Thank You. And certainly there is a a sense in which we need to be thankful as God's people because of the price that was paid for us. But interestingly, in 1 Peter, there is no mention of the word thanks or thanksgiving. The motivation for, for our living hope, the motivation in 1 Peter, and in this section, is fear. Recognize who your Father is. Recognize the judgment that's coming. Recognize the standard that you've been called to. Recognize the working of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do in your life? And are you submitted to the Spirit? Are you seeing the fruit of that life play out? And so as we come to our passage this morning in verses 17 to 19, let me read this for us and have as the theme across this message, recognizing fear, living and conducting your lives in fear. I put in your notes the NIV translation. I think it's more helpful in terms of emphasizing the word order that we actually see in the Greek. So let me read this for us and we'll begin our study. It says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, 
live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. As we've been looking at this great salvation that we have, Peter wants to emphasize how fear takes place by by stressing the significance of the redemption that has happened for you. He wants you to understand, first of all, you cannot purchase your salvation. You cannot purchase your salvation. It is beyond you. The NIV helps to draw this out by pulling this part forward in our translation. Drawing attention to the fact that that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that redemption was obtained. He wants you to understand the, the, the front matter of this. Not just getting to redemption, which is coming in a moment, and we're going to see the significance of redemption, but knowing, first and foremost, you must fear because you have nothing to do with paying off this kind of debt. You can't earn enough. You have not enough earning potential to pay off what you owe. He starts this with a participle, knowing in the translation that we have in front of us, for you know, which is a, which is a participle, helps, helps you understand there is a continual knowing that you should be aware of as a believer. Those who have experienced faith in Jesus and this saving work will know that they have been saved from something. There is a salvation that is required. There is, there is a deliverance that we need. There is a rescue plan at work that God has incorporated or initiated for us. And then we ask ourselves, well, what is this plan and why do I need saving? What is the significance? We come to appreciate that we need to be saved because of sin. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have sinned. I have sinned. Everyone in this room has sinned. Well, what is sin? Well, I like how some people have put this and made it simple for children to understand. It's it's anything that I think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes him sad. Anything that breaks the heart of God, anything that that disrupts the the standard that he has set. For the rest of us, we recognize the seriousness of sin when we put it in these terms, rebellion or hostility towards God that makes us his enemy. Your sin, my sin, we've set ourselves against a holy God. We have rebelled against his standard. And because of that, there is a debt to pay that we find in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. There is redemption that's required. But you cannot purchase your redemption. Redemption is required. That is the the purchase price. And what did we find was the purchase price for sin? Your sin, my sin, requires payment, penalty, It requires death. 
was, as I was thinking about uh, the description of Jesus by the, by the beloved Apostle John in John chapter 1. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was the initiator of physical life. It says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the initiator of all life. But Jesus is also the the initiator of spiritual life. He has claimed spiritual life through ransom. And so those who are not in Christ are those who will not experience life. The wages, the penalty... For your sin and my sin, the penalty for our rebellion, our hostility against God, is death and separation from God forever. So we needed needed ransoming. We needed to pay this debt down. We needed to absolve ourselves of this great debt. How does it happen? Well, Peter wants you to know that silver and gold are insufficient. Silver and gold are insufficient. He says, you know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. There is not enough purchasing power in the accumulation of wealth to be able to pay off this eternal debt. You can't pay off eternal things with temporal things. You need to pay off spiritual things with spiritual things. Uh, power. Those of you who understand the significance of purchasing power may, uh, re- may think about, uh, like I have, standing in line at an amusement park. Now, if you've ever done this, you know that at least in the old days, everyone had to stand in line. There wasn't any exclusion. You just, everyone, regardless of status, uh, was stood in line and waited their turn. But now what happens is those who have purchasing power can buy what? The speed pass, right? Or whatever it is at whatever amusement park you're in. You can essentially buy yourself a way to the front of the line. Peter wants his audience to understand it doesn't work that way in God's God's economy. You, You don't have enough purchasing power. Not enough gold or silver in the universe can take care of this spiritual debt. Peter emphasizes the significance of the spiritual over the physical when he talks to the lame man in Acts chapter 3 verse 6. He says, says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter and John were on their way to the temple. This lame man was asking for some alms, some help. And Peter says, hey, I I don't have silver or gold to distribute to you, but I got something better. And you know what? The lame man thought so too. After having received this this ministry of healing in his life that not, not only symbolized a physical deliverance, but a spiritual, deeper, eternal deliverance of sin, He's jumping up and down in the temple and God uses this lame man and his testimony to usher in another 4,000 people into the kingdom. His testimony and the work of God in accomplishing salvation for this lame man, not only physically but spiritually, helps to 
underscore the, the difference between what is physical and spiritual. What is silver or gold and what is eternal in salvation. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 8 verse 20. This is the ministry of, of, uh, of Philip in Samaria. He, he, he uh, uh, shares the gospel with, with everyone in this city. And many come to faith in Christ. And, and as a result, many are baptized and many experience the, the work of the Spirit in their life. Miracles and signs and tongues that they, they're able to evidence as a, as a work of the Spirit in them. Well, Simon says, I want some of that. How can I purchase that? And Peter says, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Peter puts it in no uncertain terms. He wants Simon to understand, you cannot buy the Holy Spirit. You cannot purchase your own salvation. The economy of silver and gold has no influence in the heavenly realm. Peter is dealing with a, an audience who probably understood the significance of silver and gold, given the fact that many of them were scattered and displaced. We, we saw that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Many of them have had their livelihood taken away from them. Many of them have had their properties confiscated. Many of them, in this situation, may very well have had their children and wives stripped out from underneath them. And so there was a real redemption price that needed to be paid to obtain their families back. And, and Peter is trying to help them understand that there is something greater, something more significant even than silver and gold in redeeming your family back to yourself. There is a family of God. You are citizens of heaven. Orient your attention to, towards that heavenly realm. Materialism may have been an issue in this church and Peter wants them to, to come to terms with the fact that the greatest economy is the economy of God, the spiritual economy. And silver and gold doesn't hold a candle to that economy of God. You cannot earn, you're not, you cannot pay down your salvation. You cannot purchase your salvation with silver and gold. He moves on and says, You cannot earn your salvation. Maybe this church had said, Okay, fine. If I, if I can't pay this down with money, maybe I can earn a spiritual reward in a spiritual way. Maybe I can work out these spiritual things in my own life by being a spiritual kind of person. Peter wants his audience to recognize the emptiness of that pursuit as well. He says here in verse 18, For you know it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life, there it is, handed down to you from your forefathers. Your ways are empty. I want you to recognize the futility. That's the, that's the word here, futility or worthlessness, uselessness, bankruptcy. You bring nothing to the table. You can't earn your salvation. You can't pay it down by being a good person because your ways are empty. Futile. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 17-19 puts it in very definitive and clear terms. He says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If we can back up to the first part of this. I want you to see this with me. How does, how does Paul begin to define the depths and seriousness of futility? What are some of the, the, the correlating statements that he uses in, in these next several verses? He, he talks about in the futility of their minds, but how does he continue to describe this, this condition? Do you see it? He says, darkened in their understanding. They can only see one shade. It's all darkness. There's only blindness in them. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul wants his readers to understand that, that you, were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was no life in you. There was only blindness in you. You could not respond in any way to spiritual stimulus because there was only blindness in your heart. He says, alienated from the life of God. You think you can, can add any spirituality? You think your life has, has anything that, that warms you or, or, or welcomes God into your life? He says, apart from Jesus, you're only a stranger. You're only an, an alien. You are cut off from Christ. Cut off from God, apart from Christ. And then he says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of the heart. There's no sensitivity. There's no real affection for spiritual things. There's no desire, real desire to do anything that is pleasing to God. It's only self-serving. And the prophet Isaiah puts it in, in really interesting terms when he says, there is even the, the righteous things that you do are viewed as unrighteous. Isaiah 64, what is that? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You think you bring righteousness to the table? It just smells. It's rotten. It's filthy. It's disgusting. It's just worth throwing away. You have nothing to do with that kind of righteousness because it's self-serving kind of righteousness. In the Old Testament, futility is often associated with idolatry of pagans. And in the New Testament, this word group depicts the pre-Christian existence which is marked by futility and emptiness. Even in a spiritual way, you contribute nothing to salvation. And I think we understand this in terms of the world. We, we recognize that we are, we're all, always chasing satisfaction. We're always running for something to, to fill the void in our life. We, we recognize that, that even in our spiritual living apart from Christ, there's still just emptiness. There's purposelessness. There's a striving for, for happiness. But all we are met with is inadequacy and disappointment where friends let you down. And, and all of those things you put your hope in only crumble before you. Apart from God, your life is cut off from spiritual meaning. It's just emptiness. 
And not only is your life empty apart from Christ, he goes on and describes that your ways are earthly. He says, you are redeemed from the empty way of life, and here it is, handed down to you from your forefathers. It is a way of life that you received by tradition. You're still dealing in the wrong currency. You're still dealing in things that are earthly. These traditions that have been handed down to you. The word handed down from your fathers is in the Greek literature does not convey that which is wearing out or declining. Rather, it signifies a vibrant tradition that is conveyed from generation to generation. Uh, The idea is if I find the right uh, way to express my spirituality, then God will find some measure of favor in my life. If I do all of the right things, if I follow all of the right codes, if I come to church, if I say the prayer, if I join a church in membership, if I get baptized, whatever it might be, I join a ministry, I give my money, I'm kind to my neighbors, I I treat my wife with respect, then certainly God will see that. And and the ledger of my account will, will show that the goodness outweighs the badness. Peter wants them to understand it is, it is all emptiness. It's all futility. The traditions that you have from men will lead you nowhere. It's just bankruptcy. Many are stuck in tradition and wonder why it has no real power in their life. Even those who are stuck in tradition at a Bible-believing church, it's just about the duty going through the motions, about standing up and sitting down at the right times, about bowing your head and closing your eyes at the right time, about having the right behaviors when people are watching, about doing your daily devotions and and all of the things that good Christians are supposed to do, but it has nothing to do actually with God and has nothing to do with faith. As a result, it has no power. It's just tradition, and that tradition will not save. Your spiritual devotion is not enough. So we live in reverent fear because there is nothing that you can do to purchase your salvation. There is a sense of of fear because I can't purchase and pay down my debt. There is a sense of fear because I can't earn my salvation through my good living. And that's where Peter turns next. How does salvation come? How do we experience this great work of salvation? Your salvation was paid for by precious blood. By precious blood. In verse 19, he says this, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What do we know about this precious blood? We know this blood is precious Because Christ is precious. This blood is precious because Christ is precious. This is the the precious blood of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the, the one who at his baptism and at his transfiguration, the Father says of him, he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This picture of redemption is drawn from the Old Testament, which I think is significant. That Peter, although he is writing to a a predominantly Gentile audience, he pulls his 
his truths from the Old Testament so that we understand the continuity of Old and New Testament, that the New Testament is just building on the truths that we, that we know from the Old. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, this redemption narrative where God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses, in writing these words, is helping the, the people who were once captive in Egypt, which was a symbol of their, captive, their captivity to sin. God has redeemed them and drawn them out. He has made them a people for his own possession. This purchase price, and it's important for us to understand that redemption leads to freedom, but redemption leads to freedom to slavery to the new master. Purchased from slavery that you were once in and purchased to slavery to the new master. And that new master is God himself. Romans chapter 6 talks about this. You were once slaves to sin, but now you are slaves to righteousness and slaves to God. And the wonder of this servanthood or slavery to God is that as, as Moses is writing this down, we are his purchased possession, his own special nation, his own special people. We're going to look at that in a couple of chapters from now as we look actually in next chapter in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. That God has redeemed a people to himself. And this redemption was illustrated the best in the Passover where the family would take this lamb, this, this year-old lamb, he would, he would slit, they would slit the throat of this lamb and pour out the blood and, and, and adorn the doorposts of their homes with this blood. Life for life, the life of the lamb for the life of the firstborn son. This picture of this lamb in purchasing redemption for the firstborn son. In the same way, the precious blood of Jesus was spilled for his people. This blood of Christ, and not just pouring out blood, uh, but pouring out life's blood for us on the cross, paying the price for sin, which was death on the cross. So what makes this blood precious? It's precious because it's Christ's blood, eternal blood, divine blood, infinitely costly blood of the only begotten Son of God. The blood that can never be paid by man, but only paid by Christ. It is precious blood because it's Christ's blood. But it's also precious because Christ was perfect. We see this now at the end of verse 19. The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The conditions for sacrifice in the Passover were to, to take a spotless, a blemish-free kind of lamb and to offer him as, as atonement, as a, as, a, as a sacrifice or redemption for that firstborn son. 
We also see the conditions for the sacrifices in Leviticus 22, verses 20 to 25. The lamb must be perfect, having no blemish, must not be blind or disabled or mutilated, having no scabs or sores, having no limbs longer than the other. In every way, it demonstrated perfection to illustrate and to symbolize the perfect sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus was the precious Son of God, righteous and pure, fulfilling the demands of the law in every way so that He could be sacrificed for us and His righteousness could be placed on those who believe in Jesus as their Savior. So, why? Why should we live in reverent fear? Why should we live in reverent fear? Based upon this passage, well, for several reasons. Because you don't have the purchasing power to pay for your salvation. You're unable, even as the richest person on the planet, to be able to pay off your spiritual debt, your sin debt, You also can't earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do on your own to merit salvation through your good works, through your devotion to God, through your spiritual life, however spiritual you think it might be. Your spirituality is bankruptcy. It's emptiness. It's just following after the the traditions of men. We should fear because of the cost. The cost for your redemption that God himself sent his son Jesus, who became the lamb for us, who was a spotless lamb of God. God hated sin so much that he had to kill his son Jesus, Christ for you. The wrath of God fell on Christ. Be afraid of the consequences of sin, that God had to crush his only son to redeem you and to ransom you and to, to welcome you into relationship. Recognize that only a spotless lamb, only the purity and holiness of Jesus could pay your debt. As we conclude, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand the significance of the sacrifice that was given to us and the the rightful kind of life and fear that we should have as people who are following after God. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 30, it says this, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let me pause just there for a moment. We we know in other places of Scripture that those who have been welcomed into relationship, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. If you are in Christ... Nothing can take that away. You have the Spirit who is living in your life. But the writer of the Hebrews wants you to understand something significant. If you are in Christ, there will be a holiness about you because the Holy Spirit indwells you. So don't be flippant about your sin. Don't be casual about your sin. Don't be indifferent about the consequences of sin. Recognize a father who judges sin of those who are outside. Verse 27, but a certain, here it is, fearful expectation of judgment in fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
If God the Father sent His wrath and fury on His Son Jesus because of sin and you are not in Christ, then you will experience the same consequences. Anyone, verse 28, who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? Don't minimize the debt that was paid for you. Don't be casual or flippant about that sacrifice. Don't consider that precious blood as common. Recognize the significance of that debt that was paid for you. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Are we allowing the reminder of future judgment and being in Christ to, to help to order, order our perspective, to, to help to, to fill out our, our, our knowledge of, of, of who Jesus is and the preciousness of this great salvation that we enjoy. Of course, you can experience freedom from judgment if you're in Jesus Christ through faith. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you asked for forgiveness for your sins? Have you experienced the forgiveness and cleansing that comes? The, the declaration of righteousness as, as the righteous, pure, spotless Lamb of God has paid for your sin and transferred His righteousness to your account. There's no longer bankruptcy there. The ledger is full because of the righteousness of Christ if you're in Christ through faith. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would be people who are motivated by a healthy fear of you. Yes, there is gratitude. Yes, there is, is thanksgiving for all that you've accomplished for us. But, but Lord, help us not to lose uh, sight of the fact that we need to live in reverent fear, healthy fear of recognizing the debt that was paid for us and your hatred of sin. I pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning who doesn't know you as their Savior, that you would usher them into relationship and, and may they experience the joy of knowing you personally and the freedom of being purchased by you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this week. Hope you have a good one.